Part One, Chapter Twenty Four, Part B, of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Prison Life at Fort Warren, Part B. Early in the morning, the steamer reached Fall River, where, leaving the boat, we were marched to the depot and took the train. A whole car having been allotted to us alone. Had we wished to escape, the guards allowed every opportunity. We were at liberty to stand on the platform of the cars by obtaining permission of the officer of the day, who was disposed to be very friendly toward us. Passing through a long tunnel, where the train went very slowly, it was debated among a few of us whether or not it were better to slip off, but we thought that in our gray uniforms and without a cent in our pockets and in the midst of bitter enemies it would be only avoiding Cherubdis to fall into Scylla, and so the idea was dismissed. Boston and its suburbs, with its villas, stylish country seats, and neat farmhouses, was a revelation to our southern eyes. The houses and grounds seemed spick-span and new, so different from the let-things-go-and-take-it-easy style to which we had been accustomed. To be sure, there was nothing of age to be met with anywhere, not even as much as of the hundred years to which, as a new country, we were entitled, but on the other hand, there were no hanging gates, no tumble-down porches, no veteran pumps, nothing but what showed promptness of repair and energy, opposed to our put-off lazy plantation principle. The southerner takes pride in his old house, and will keep it intact as in the days of his grandfather or great-grandfather. The same old portraits hanging on the wall, the same old furniture. He may add wings to the building and a porch here and there, but the old parental roof remains like a hen with her brood around her. The spirit of decay is not kept down on his grounds and rolling acres. He is in no hurry to improve things. He will tie and prop up where a nail should go. Paint he does not hanker after. His very equipage is often wheezy, and so a flavor of age tinges his home as it does the hair on his head and his wine. What was good enough for my father before me is good enough for me becomes a maxim on his lips to be handed down to his son after him. The northern spirit is essentially progressive, if not reverential. When the patrimonial mansion descends to a younger generation, and increasing coffers are the reward of thrift, he says, I will put down my house and my barns and build greater. And on the site of the old foundation stone arises a structure whose elegance and comfort is only limited by the length of purse. Where money is no consideration, palatial residences are built fit for the nobles of the old world. Everything is modern. The more modern, the better. His carriages are all glaze and shine. His furniture changes with the fashion. His grounds are laid out with mathematical exactness. The very trees are grown to shape. The hedges are cut according to pattern. The lawns are sown and rolled to velvet precision. And nature is made to step back and yield to the aesthetic as it may be apprehended at the time. The northern characteristic, however, is essentially that of cleanliness. He is obtrusively neat. He hates dust and dirt more than anything else, snakes and sin not excepted. In soap and scrubbing is his national faith. If he had his mother-in-law cremated, and the sacred dust were by accident to escape from the precious urn, a servant with soap and mop would wipe her up. Early in the forenoon we left the cars and found ourselves in the spacious depot in the ultra-Union city of Boston the first rebels that ever pressed with sacrilegious feet its loyal streets, the first rebels who walked under the shadow of Faneuil Hall. No, now that we think of it, 
A large gang of them passed its doors about a hundred years or so ago on their way to burn some British tea that a loyal tax had been placed upon. It was rebellion, of course, but all New England gloried in the name Rebel then. Boston, that city of furors, the Athens of America, the hub of the universe, the city of many titles, rarely enjoyed in those war times a greater sensation than was caused by the appearance of a hundred live, genuine rebels captured on the battlefields. The great sea serpent taken off the coast, the walking giant, nay, even a grand circus parade of wild animals, with a hippopotamus and a giraffe headed up the thoroughfare, would not have collected a larger crowd in a shorter time. Had Bunker Hill Monument stepped down from its stately perch and walked away on feet, decorously wrapped in the American flag, bowing right and left to the multitude, they could hardly have excited more curiosity than did that line of simple gray jackets. A mob followed us up the street, a good-natured mob, though, that only used its eyes. After having passed a square or two, the crowd became so dense, the pressure upon us so great, that further progress became impossible. The guards could not keep off the throng that hemmed them in, so we were halted while a heavy detachment of police formed an outer cordon and another squad in front opened the way. Then we slowly made our progress through the streets. The pavements, the balconies, the very housetops were filled with an inquisitive gazing multitude, while the little street Arabs swung like monkeys from the trees. Shops were suddenly emptied of clerks and purchasers. Windows sprung open, shutters flew wide, heads were thrust out, and eyes stared us in the face whichever way we looked. The newsboys neglected to call their papers. The hackman pulled up on one side of the street, forgetting for a moment to lash his bony, lean horses. Carriages came to a sudden halt. In fact, all business was so effectually suspended as on that day when Jack Cade rode through London, announcing the arrival of the millennium, ordering all work to cease, and promising that quartan bread should be half-penny a loaf, and that conduits should run wine. Old men peered at us through spectacles. Women stopped to watch us. Boys gazed. And the children blessed their innocent hearts. There is no knowing what tales those infant Bostonians had heard about the rebels that brought that look of fright into their young eyes. It was the same expression with which they gaze upon the man-eating lion in the menagerie, and they clung to their mothers and nurses as if they had been brought face to face with just so many monsters. What the citizens thought of us we had no means of finding out, yet it must have been rather a disappointment. Each one of us, to accord with the popular idea, should have been at least seven feet high, with a villainous countenance overshadowed by a wide-brimmed hat. We should have had a shock of unkempt flowing hair, and a beard like that of the giant in the fairy tale, who wore seven-leagued boots and ate a child at every meal. Bowie knife should have been our chief personal adornment, and scowling our pastime. As it was, we were rather too commonplace, though our procession was quite imposing. First the police at our head, next followed our officers, with our colonel leading, and a handsomer, more distinguished-looking man, to serve for our frontispiece, would have been hard to find north or south. Last came the privates strung out in twos, with the guards on each side, the police escorting. Altogether the train stretched out for fully a whole square. A more reckless, daredevil set of boys, for nearly all those privates were no more than boys, were never before brought together by the fortunes of war. It may be safely surmised that they kept no decorous silence as befitted less miserables on the way to prison. 
They scattered greetings right and left, they bowed to every pretty girl, they complimented every handsome woman in the same manner. So we went, making slow but steady progress. Not one rudeness nor insult was offered us during the whole route, which spoke well for the charity, the refinement, and good taste of the Bostonians. Many onlookers tried to get inside the line to talk, but were repulsed by the police, the soldiers not caring one way or the other. Only the newspaper men joined our ranks. They can get anywhere. As they talked with us, they asked question after question, and it must be feared the papers next morning recorded strangely contradictory stories and some right hard tales that required much faith for digesting, inasmuch as none of the privates so interviewed had any serious fears of the fate of Ananias, or rather they were not disposed to talk as if they had, and though from the same state as the youthful Washington, living almost under the shadow of his tomb, well, they would not have compromised that good little hatchet as he did. It was an hour before we reached the wharf where a steam tug lay in waiting. Going aboard and bidding our police escort a polite farewell, the little boat picked her way down the river, reaching Fort Warren at the mouth of the bay, after a pleasant ride. This fortification was an elaborate and massive work, commanding all of the approaches to the city. From the upper tiers of guns a plunging fire of forty-five degrees could have sunk any vessel, ironclad or otherwise. Fort Warren, well garrisoned, was to our eyes simply impregnable. After we landed a guard took us in charge, our former sentinels returning in the boat. We were led within the parade grounds, where we remained until arrangements were made for our comfort. We were soon surrounded by the political prisoners, who were of influence and had been incarcerated for their outspoken southern sentiments, or for some acts considered by the authorities as disloyal, but whether justly or unjustly so, remained to be proven. There were also some of our officers high in rank, Generals Buckner and Tilgman, captured at Fort Donaldson, Commodore Barron of the Confederate Navy, Marshal Kane and Dr. McGill of Maryland, and some other citizens of less note. There were none of the rank and file other than ourselves, and we blessed our stars that we had fallen into such a soft place. The political prisoners had a splendid dinner ready for us, such a dinner as the Confederacy in all its length and breadth could not have given us, a dinner that we had dreamed of in our days of short rations. It is needless to say that our onslaught was a heavy one. Indeed, the amount of food that we consumed, and the bottles of wine which we emptied in that one meal, would seem incredible to anyone not informed as to the expansive power of the rebel soldier's digestive apparatus. The donors watched our efforts with the keenest delight. After a good smoke, the prisoners were assigned their quarters, consisting of two long casemented apartments, one for sleeping, the other the mess-room. In the former, bunks were built one above the other like berths in a ship. A blanket per man was issued, while the political prisoners presented each of us with a suit of underclothing. No rations were given, but instead the storeroom was open, to the contents of which the messes could help themselves as it might please them. Certainly no prisoners of war had ever been treated so luxuriously before, nor were they ever afterwards. Breakfast consisted of coffee, real, not ground rye or corn fresh loaf bread, mess beef, hominy, boiled ham, and eggs ad libitum. Dinner was proportionately good. The mess-room was a large vaulted apartment, cool even in the hottest part of the day, the casements allowing a refreshing ocean breeze to pass through. 
A large cooking stove was at one end, around which were hanging all the necessary utensils, and on one side was the temporary storeroom with barrels of hard bread, flour, mess pork, beef, and groceries of various kinds. Later in the day a few of us visited the Maryland prisoners. Their quarters were luxuriously fitted up with Brussels carpets on the floors, mahogany furniture, and a fine library. At the same time they had their own servants and attendants. The officers and citizens, with one exception, were not prisoners except in name, inasmuch as they had no guard placed over them. They had the freedom of the fort and were on terms of cordial intimacy with the family of the commandant. With such a pleasant mess, theirs must have been a regular clubhouse life, very enjoyable to look back upon in after years. The authorities in Washington evidently entertained against our officer in rank, General Buckner, some bitter feeling, for by the explicit and positive orders of Mr. Stanton, Secretary of War, he was kept in close and solitary confinement, the parole extended to all of his comrades-in-arms having been denied him, with the exception of a short walk every evening, which he took for exercise between two armed sentries. The commander of the fort was not responsible for this, for a kinder and truer gentleman, a more gallant or chivalrous officer, never lived than Colonel Dimock. He was an old army officer and had commanded at Old Point several years before, when that place was a fashionable pleasure resort. Some of us, having met him in those happier days, found no difficulty in recalling the erect, soldierly figure, the benevolent-looking face, and the kindly voice. In that large heart of his, no bitterness, no malice, no sectional hate could find an abiding place. There was not a prisoner under his charge who did not learn to respect and love him before a week had rolled over their heads. While doing his duty as a soldier, he did not sacrifice his humanity as a man. It was the brave Archduke Charles who once said, The flattery of friends I think nothing of, but the praise of the foe I value indeed. Most of the first day our men spent in writing home to relations and friends who lived within the Union lines. In their letters they were confined to business and family affairs, all political and war themes having been strictly forbidden. These communications were read by the garrison officers, and if there were found in them the slightest allusion to those subjects, the effusion was destroyed or handed back to the writer, with an admonition to be more careful in the future. A good many men were taken sick a day or two after reaching the fort. Several nearly shuffled off their mortal coil. Too much indulgence in rich food was the cause of it, though there were some who traced the primary cause back to that tripe eaten on the Fall River boat. Nothing but skill and unremitting watchfulness of one of the political prisoners, Dr. McGill, of Hagerstown, saved the lives of those who were so very ill that it was but a touch-and-go with them. What a noble specimen of humanity that man was! Of Herculean stature, outspoken and fearless as a lion, yet with a heart and touch for the sick as gentle as he was brave. Generally speaking, a private's life was considered by the outside world as comparatively nothing, only valued as so much finger-power to pull a trigger or as good for powder. This good man sat up with these gray jackets through the long hours of the night, watched the flickering pulse, and nursed the wavering powers with just the same fidelity and untiring devotion as if those poor soldiers had more than thanks with which to repay him. A few days after our arrival, innumerable baskets, barrels, boxes, and packages of all sizes came pouring in for the prisoners, 
filled with clothes of all kinds, books, luxuries, indeed everything that could be worn or eaten by man. Most of the freight was from Alexandria, Virginia, where the majority of the 17th had lived, though Baltimore, New York, and even Boston added a quota. We were overwhelmed with presents and were made the recipients of clothes sufficient to supply a brigade. All the fine citizen suits and underclothing left by the volunteers when they made their hasty exit from Alexandria were boxed up and forwarded promptly to Fort Warren. Several Dutchmen, who had been taken prisoners, found themselves apparelled in broadcloth and fine linen, such as they had never worn before. In fact, there was so much the men could not use that they gave the garrison guards a good deal of clothing. Not only clothes, but money was sent and some of us found our pockets full for the first time in many a long day. The better class of prisoners who had funds formed a mess, and as there was a sutler at the fort, we lived like fighting cocks. The consequence was soon seen. As thin faces commenced to round out, stout figures began to change into fat ones, and in three weeks the difference between the hungry, gaunt crowd which made its way over the drawbridge and the well-dressed lazy men sauntering about the fort was as marked as that between Pharaoh's seven lean kine and his well-favored and fat-fleshed cattle that fed in a meadow. We find tares in all wheat. Nothing is quite perfect in this world, and so in the Union-loving, hail-Columbia, super-loyal city of Boston there were actually rebel sympathizers. They came on the steamer to visit us, but as such a procedure would have been contrary to military discipline, which permitted no visitors to enter the fort, their kind wishes took a more practical form in presenting each prisoner with a handsome gray uniform. Those were halcyon days, those days of July 1862, light spots in a generally dark life. Our soldier prisoners, so inured to hardship, want, and suffering, had now not a care on their minds, not a trouble in their hearts. They drew in long breaths of content, and could only sigh sometimes at the thought of the dark future, which was doomed to hold so marked a contrast to that perfect rest and satisfaction. It was too good to last long, that life of ours. Roll call in the morning at seven, breakfast at eight, cards, chess, conversation, or reading until dinner, just as fancy listed. Dinner at three, coffee and cigars at four, then came the postprandial nap. At six, an hour's stroll around the ramparts and parole, or if preferred, a bath in the briny deep. Supper at eight, music until ten, then taps. Such had been the order of our lives for three weeks, when the command was given to prepare to leave the next morning for Virginia. Well, of course we were glad to go, and yet sorry. Two dry crackers a day, washed down with parched corn coffee, did not present quite an enlivening prospect. Then, too, everybody seemed to regret our departure. Our citizen prisoners would miss us dreadfully, for we stirred up the monotony of their quiet lives. The garrison guards would feel our absence, for many were the flasks of whiskey we had given them, and clothes. The sutler who absorbed our money would gaze wistfully after our receding pockets, all that was left of them, while the Dutch girls employed by the garrison to do our washing and mending would cry their blue eyes out, we feared. They came to see us once more, poor Gretchens, and told us in broken English they would think of us when we were across the rivers in that strange, dreadful country of Virginia. We swore that just as soon as the cruel war was over, we would return and marry every one of them, make them mistresses of a hundred slaves to do their bidding, and so they smiled through their tears. Then the idea arose to celebrate the last night by giving those girls a dance. 
Colonel Dimock's consent was good-humouredly accorded with the proviso that the frolic should end at twelve. The mess-room was selected for the scene of action. Word was sent to the Dutch maidens to come at eight exactly. The men were placed upon various committees, some to see the sutler and arrange about the supper, others to take down the stove and clear up the room, while others attended to the music. All worked with a will, and promptly at the minute the fun began. It was the famous Lanigan's Ball over again. At ten supper was served, and in half an hour the dancing was resumed and kept up with a vin. Whiskey flowed like water, and the Dutch and English language became so entwined thereby that it was an impossibility to distinguish one from the other. Everyone talked enough and to spare, but no one understood anyone else. As the faded hour approached, the revelry was at its height. The fiddlers played as only drunken fiddlers can. The dancers shouted and swung each other, the onlookers in excited tones urging them to renewed vigor, while the uproar made the rafters of the vaulted chamber fairly ring again. Then the drum beat. "'Lights out!' shouted the guard. The Cinderella's of the evening had touched the magic hour. The prince's ball was over. Not a moment's delay. Sad, tearful, and hurried partings and protestations were sworn to in English and whispered in Dutch, when presto, more quickly than the change of scene in a pantomime, the hall so brilliant in lights, so animated with moving figures, so resonant with music and joyous voices, was still dark and empty, the banquet hall deserted. Next day came the leave-takings. The quartet club serenaded by sunlight Colonel Dimmock and his family in that sweet farewell song of Schiller's, and afterwards every man of the rebel line went up to the colonel, and out of a full heart and with dewy eyes thanked him for his undeviating kindness and generous consideration. He was touched by this sense of gratitude and showed that he felt it. His sleep that night was none the less sweet, doubtless, that so many southern hearts, held him in kindliest remembrance, and had never the memory of one harsh act to bring against him in this world or the next. Soon the farewell words were spoken, and we went aboard the Osceola, a fine ocean steamship. The last we saw of the fort, the daughters of Dutchland, like so many black-eyed Susans, were still standing on the ramparts waving their handkerchiefs. Gradually their figures faded away in the distance and became invisible and as the powerful strokes of the engine sent the boat surging ahead through the blue waters, Fort Warren looked like a speck in the horizon, and then faded utterly away. End of chapter 24